Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. Before we go too far down the road, I feel like we need to just have a, a quick recap of where we have been, right? God's people were not following God's commands. He instructed them to change. He warned them of the consequences of not changing. And yet the people of God kept to their old ways. And before we, we go too far, let's just take that into the, the, the context of parenting for those of you that, that have children and, and maybe you don't have children, but I'm pretty sure all of us were children at one point. I think. Um, so I think we can maybe understand this. If I'm speaking to my child or if at, when I was a child and my parents were speaking to me, it was, okay, this is what I'd like you to do. And I then make a willful choice to not do it. You say, well, this is the, the consequence for making that willful choice to not do it. <laughs> and then you're going to go do it. <laughs> right? And so I, I have taken that and have applied that to, to my parenting, but there is a directive, there is a choice. Depending on that choice, there is a consequence, and then ultimately you're going to make the right choice. <laughs> so what we see here is th- this Directive has been given, this, this commandment, if you will, because we have the Ten Commandments that were given in, in the book of Exodus, right? We have that plus a, a, a series of laws that are given to the people that specifically explain how to make this happen, how God's people can experience God, God's presence in God's place, how, how that comes about is by the people of God following the directive that they've been given. So God has issued this command. He's instructed them on what to do. He's warned them, if you don't do this, you are going to be choosing to step outside of my presence. Not that God is going to remove himself from them. They are choosing to remove themselves from God. That's very important to understand the distinction. That that God's not saying, hey, I'm mad at you, and because I'm mad at you, I'm going to stop being in relationship with you. No, that God is not that kind of God. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) No, it's through my choices and my actions, I'm the one who puts up the barrier that says, I'm choosing to step away from this relationship, choosing to step away from your best, from your presence and your place. And so what we see is the consequence of God's people making this choice is an enemy nation comes and defeats God's people, leading them out of God's place into exile for 70 years, in which time they're forced to figure out what it means to be God's people outside of God's place and trying to figure out how to experience God's presence. For 70 years, they have to figure out how do we get back into right relationship with God. And again, it's not because God is absent. It's because they have to figure out how to put themselves back in that place. How do we return to where we once were? 
And the group after that 70 years is eventually allowed to go back and to rebuild the temple. And then years later, a group through Nehemiah's leadership is allowed to go back to rebuild the walls of the city so that God's people could determine what it meant to live as the people of God. So that they could go back and and understand what it meant to be the people of God. So in Nehemiah chapter 1, we hear that the condition of Jerusalem and Nehemiah mourns over it and he prays for four months as to what it is that God is calling him to do. This burden has been placed on him. Nehemiah chapter 2, he goes to the king and he's invited to make a request because God's favor is on Nehemiah. And Nehemiah asks for leave and he asks for resources to rebuild. In chapter 3, we see this list of regular people, not special people, not anybody that's famous in the Bible that that you're going to read a name and say, oh, I know who that person is. Regular people volunteering to show up. And those are the names that have been written in God's word for all of eternity. Chapter 4, we see outsiders that, that aren't happy that God's people are moving forward. Chapter 5, the the people begin harming one another by not caring for the needs of each other. In chapter 6, there's conflict not only from outside the walls, but conflict from within where people are trying to slow down leadership and people are trying to redirect attention away from God's plan. Chapter 7, a system is established to account for all of the people of God. In chapter 8, the word of God is established as being the most important thing. This is how you get back to being God's people in God's place, experiencing God's presence, is through the word of God. And then conviction comes in chapter 9 where they recognize, man, we just read all of this stuff about what it means to be God's people and we're not doing any of it. That's a problem. How do, how do we come back? How do, how do we return to the heart of God? Their lives were not a reflection of what they saw in God's word. In chapter 10, the people of God came and, and they gave to, together. In chapter 11, each person, person is recognized as having skills and capabilities and, that can be used for God's purposes. And so the talents and the capabilities of individuals were brought together saying, you, you have been given this gift and you should use it for the kingdom of God. In chapter 12, the people of God come together and they worship joyfully, giving thanks for all that God has done. And the surrounding towns hear the joy and the worship that's coming out of Israel. What was once burnt ash is giving praise to God. And I so wish that that's where we could just stop. <laughs> Chapter 13 is about when the compromises come. Nehemiah leaves the city for a period of time, and when he returns, he finds that the established walls and systems have not stopped God's people from once again falling away from God's plan and as a result, God's presence. The walls were rebuilt. The city was defended from the enemies outside of the walls, but the enemies within were just as much a threat. Chapter 14 
The first three verses of chapter 13 are interesting because you would really expect them to be at the very end. Verses 1 through 3 says, On that day the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. So we see this, this, the conclusion of the chapter is in these first three verses showing their need to commit yet again back to, to doing things the right way and it meant making changes to how they were living in that moment. And when you first hear the changes that they're, they're making, it's, it's easy to listen to them and be like, man, that sounds kind of harsh. That sounds kind of judgmental. I mean... Committing to scripture, that, that makes sense. We could get on board with that. But separating from all other cultures, that, that doesn't seem loving. That doesn't seem Christ-like. It's important to understand what's actually being said here. God isn't saying to not influence and bless and love those other cultures. God is saying not to let those other cultures influence them. The Moabites and the Ammonites were two people groups who, struck, excuse me, who strongly opposed Israel when they first left Egypt. And both of these people groups had religious practices that were not acceptable for God's people, including child sacrifice and sexual immorality and prostitution and worship of their false gods. Those things are not acceptable. And God is saying those things are not acceptable. And if you bring these people into your families, if you bring them inside the city walls, they are going to bring those things with them. They are not to influence you. You are to influence them. Then we go to, to verse 4. It says, Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God, and he was closely associated with Tobiah. Now, there's, not a, there's a lot of names in the book of Nehemiah, but there are a few names that we probably need to pay a little closer attention to, and Tobiah is one of them. Do you remember who Tobiah was? <laughs> He was the bad guy. <laughs> he was the guy that was talking about the wall and how a fox was going to knock it over. He was the guy that, that had a, a lot of business interest in not seeing the city of Jerusalem rebuilt. And yet here we have the priest, Eliashib, being closely associated with Tobiah. You mean to tell me that the spiritual leader, the person, one of the people that is in charge of the spiritual welfare and development of the people of Israel, of God's people, allowed a marriage to take place? Because that's actually what it is, is that his family married into the family of Tobiah, that he allowed a marriage to take place between his family and a specifically outspoken enemy of God. 
Verse 5 says, and he had provided him, him being Tobiah, with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain and new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So not only did he allow a marriage to take place, he said, you know, we don't need to store this stuff that's used for the worship of the one true God. We're going to set that stuff, that can just go out in the front yard like that broken down Chevy that somebody has in their front yard. No judgment if that's you. Um, we'll, we'll just put that out there. And the enemy of God can set up camp in the temple. That'll be fine. This is a priest. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem, and here I learned about the evil things that Elisha had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out from the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then put them back, put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. You know what I see here? I see Jesus with the whip in the temple. <laughs> saying this is how the house of God is supposed to be used. Now, let's, let's take out of this for just a minute, and let's come to today. Are there things, you know, what, what does this mean for us today? Does this mean that we're not, like, I can't let any secular, you know, entity come into the church and use a Sunday school room for, room for storage? No, I, I don't think that's what this is talking about. There's, there's more to it than that. Because what is the temple today? The temple today isn't these four walls. Exactly. The temple is my heart. And my question is, are there things where we need to show up in our hearts and start chucking stuff out the front window saying, you don't belong here? Sometimes we get so caught up in these four walls as being God's place, which it is. This, this is God's place. We have dedicated this building to the worship of God, absolutely. But that is not what this is about. We forget that thanks to the blood of Jesus, God's place is in me. To put a finer point on it, if there is something that you wouldn't do, watch, or say in this building because of what this building represents, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. What reactions are we to have when we find these things in our life? How are we supposed to respond? We're supposed to throw it out just like Nehemiah did. So Nehemiah's absence from the city opens the door to rampant spiritual compromise. And, and let's be clear, that, that's not because, it's not Nehemiah's fault that he left. He had to go do other things. When the position of authority leaves, that's when we see the actual condition of the heart of the people. The definition of integrity what you do when no one else is watching. Who 
is going to do what when the authority leaves? When mom and dad go away, when the boss isn't watching, when the teacher isn't watching, when name any authority figure is no longer paying attention, what is it that you actually do or that someone else actually does? That's, that's how we know the actual condition of a person's heart. When we see Nehemiah leave, we see that the people were behaving because Nehemiah was there. People were, were following the, the laws because Nehemiah was there and he was enforcing that expectation, not because it was the right thing to do. In verse 10, it says, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes, grain, and new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms. Sorry, my iPad just decided to move. And made Hanan and, and Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its service. So what we have here is the people of God making a choice to deprioritize giving to support the function and the process of, of pursuing God's presence. To the point where the spiritual leaders are saying, well, for me to survive, I need to go back home and start working in my field because I'm not getting enough to provide for myself and my family. And as we have the absence of the people of God from the city, we already saw what happened when just Nehemiah left. Now we have all of the framework that is involved in conducting and coordinating the spiritual worship has now gone absent. And the spiritual condition of the people begins to suffer because of it. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. They were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath, and therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing that you are doing desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same, th same things so that our God brought all of this calamity on us and on this city? And now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. We just got out of exile for 70 years because of these things that you did and you're doing them again. Stop it. I mean, can you imagine being in that meeting? The, the leaders of, of Israel, the, the leaders of God's people being in that meeting with Nehemiah. I mean, I just picture him there with like a, a switch or something, just like, bend over. You need a spanking. What's wrong with you? 
Verse 19, when, when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gate so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem, but I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Laying hands, I don't think they were praying for healing. Another translation, just they, they put it a little more bluntly and say, they, I will arrest you. But... Um, Did closing the gates fix the spiritual condition of the people? No. Did closing the gates all of a sudden force the entire city to, to recognize and to uh, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy? Not really. What, what was the point? It, it made it harder. It made it harder to disobey. It made it harder for the people to sin. If I'm thinking of a, a modern application for us today, do you know there are inappropriate things on the internet? <laughs> Did you know that there's ways that you can filter out the content that, that comes into your home in the internet? You can close those gates. Did you know there's ways to get around those gates? then what's the point of the gate? Because it, it makes it harder. It says, if this is something that, that I want to participate in, if I'm, let's, let's go back to the, the Sabbath example. If I'm wanting to disobey and, and to not honor the Sabbath day, well, I can make that choice to do that as much as I want, but it definitely means I'm not going to buy from uh, the people from Tyre because Nehemiah already said he's going to lay hands on them. So I have to find a different way to choose to dishonor the Sabbath. The people's sinful obsession with prosperity and productivity infringed on the time that God had specifically set aside, saying, this is my time. This is a time where you and I establish relationship, where we come back to relationship with one another. That, that is a point of the Sabbath. Do you know that? that it is a, a time to return to God. Yeah, we know we're supposed to only be working these six days and to take a Sabbath, but, but in the culture that we find ourselves in, we have all these needs. We, we need to... to to take care of, of this particular thing. If I just had this much more money, I would be able to do this thing and then I wouldn't have this particular need. I need to provide for myself. God says, trust me. Trust me. I am enough. While everyone else works those seven days, if you choose to set aside one day for me, I will show up in ways that you cannot even begin to imagine. Trust me. But I can make more money. 
I could have a bigger house. I could have a nicer car. I can have more stuff. But God says, trust me. God is enough. That's, that's the message to, to his people. I am your portion. I am your provider. And if I choose to place my trust in God, all of my needs will be met. The pause in my life is needed in order to pursue spiritual health. That, that's, if we're, we're just boiling Sabbath down to just the, the bare bones, and there's so much more to it, but if we just boil it down to the bare bones, it's a pause in our lives so that we are able to recalibrate and refocus on the right priority. Verse 23 says, And moreover in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage, or excuse me, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you, are, that you too are doing all of this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. And I drove him away from me. Before we go too much further, I want to, to hammer home what is actually being talked about here. Because again, we, we hear this conversation about the Moabites and the Ammonites and how, how God is, is so against them seemingly. But I want to, to point out just really quickly how not against the people God is. Do you know what, the, what people group Ruth came from? She was a Moabite. Did you know that Ruth is in the bloodline of Jesus? So when we start hearing about the, the directives against the, the beliefs and the, the people of Moab, it is that. It is a directive of, of influence that you are not to allow these people or their beliefs to influence you. However, God loves those people. That, that was the reason that, that God told Abraham that through you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. That the, the people of Israel were to be a blessing to all of the surrounding nations. They were to, to be impactful. They were to, to share the love of God with these other people. But what we see here is the idolatrous relationships 
darkening the understanding of the one true God. You say, well, is it really that bad? It is that bad because we have now children that are coming out of these relationships that don't know how to speak Hebrew. And you're like, well, what's, so, what's the big deal about being able to speak Hebrew? They can't read the word of God. That's a big deal. We now, if this was allowed to continue, we now have an entire generation that is, is incapable of actually receiving and understanding for themselves the word of God. And that's not supposed to happen. You know, at weddings, there is this one part, and, and most couples don't really do this anymore, where... You, you ask at the end, if anybody objects, and most people don't do it because they're like, eh, there's that one uncle that might just get a little weird. Um, Nehemiah is objecting. And not only is he objecting, he's, he's walking up the aisle, he's grabbing the groom by the beard and saying, you come with me. And he's chucking him out the front door too, saying, this will not stand. Nehemiah knows that the person you join with romantically in this life will have the biggest impact on how you live spiritually. That is true. The children being raised by these people did not speak the Hebrew language required to read and understand God's word. And that is a problem. Verse 29 says, remember then, my God, because remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. So Nehemiah shows up and says, we need more procedures. We need more processes. We need to clean house. We need to start over so that we do not get back to the place of, of getting exiled out of God's place, missing out on God's presence until the point where maybe we just aren't even worthy to be called God's people anymore. And that's the end. Man, why couldn't it just stop at, at chapter 12? It would have been so much better. I mean, we, we had the whole city rejoicing. We had, you know, a city that was in ashes now praising and, and worshiping God. Shouldn't there be something about it? And they all came together and lived happily ever after. Please. Four times Nehemiah commits the, commits the people of God to the hands of God. And what that looks like to me is a leader that says, I will do everything in my power to bring these people to you. But it's also a recognition that at the end of the day, it is a personal choice that has to be made. Church, it is a personal choice today. As we talked about examining our hearts, examining the, the temple of our hearts and finding those things that, that aren't supposed to be there and, and getting that pile out in your front yard of your heart saying, all of this stuff is moving out. It's a personal choice. 
I cannot do that for you. Your spouse cannot do that for you. Your friend cannot do that for you. That is a you thing. What area of compromises exist in your life and what needs to be done to get rid of them because they need to be torn out? Who are you when your Nehemiah is not around? And, and maybe there isn't this, this huge gaping compromise that exists, but maybe there are things that you know that you recognize. You say, man, if, if I just leaned a little bit to the right, all of a sudden this thing could, could just come toppling down. We have to find those things and we have to, to figure out how it is that, that we're supposed to dedicate those things to the service of God or remove them from our life. We are to be aware of, of relationships that would pull us away from God's best. We cannot expect to grow spiritually if we do not create the time to do it. Just like the people of God were choosing to, to give up the Sabbath, how are we supposed to grow spiritually if we do not set aside the time to do it? The habits that exist in my life, the practices that exist in my life are either helping or hindering the health of my family. We are to commit to knowing the Word of God so that we can commit to living out the Word of God. How can we expect each other to live the way we are called to live if we have not read how we are supposed to live? And can I tell you the good news? It doesn't mean memorizing the entire book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> it doesn't mean that we have to start covering all of our, our belongings and personal stuff with cow blood. Goat blood, sheep blood, whatever blood may be appropriate. But it does mean that I'm supposed to be covered in the blood of Jesus. And I'm supposed to live my life in a way that reflects that, that other people can look at and say, wow, there's something different about Matt, that, that it sets him apart, not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus is living through me. That's the, the call that, that exists, the commitment that is present on my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have made a way to come home. God, just like we see here in, in the book of Nehemiah, that God, you made a way for the people to come out of exile and to come home. And after they came home, after they made the mistakes that they made, after they sinned the way they sinned, even in those sins, you still made a way for them to come home. God, every mistake that I make, every step that I take that is contrary to your word, contrary to your direction, you still make a way for me to come home. God, you never separate yourself from me. And I thank you for it. God, this morning we thank you for the blood of Jesus that, uh, that is for me.
the blood of Jesus that, that washes me white as snow, the blood of Jesus that cleanses, the blood of Jesus that saves. We thank you for it. As we prepare for our communion time, Lord, we come to this table and we remember a sacrifice that was given so that we could come home. A sacrifice that was given so that we could be made right, so that we could be in in right relationship with you. God, as we, we pause for this moment, as we pause for this remembrance, Lord, I ask that you would make it real. That you would make it real as we participate in this this morning. That, that it wouldn't be just that thing we do once a month. It wouldn't be just that, that styrofoam-tasting cracker and the weird-tasting juice, but it would be real. This represents a life-altering, life-trajectory-changing event. We recognize that this morning. God, thank you for your blood. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop.